0: Our scripture reading this week is from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, The Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof And that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or that have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales you may not eat. For, for you, it is unclean. You may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon. Any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. But any winged creature that is clean you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner. But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk.
1: And he is a pastor that I've come to really respect Over the years, Uh, Nate, you want me to just use this? Yeah, okay. Use this one? I can just use this. Okay. I don't know if you can put that into the recording or not, but uh, Nate can figure anything out. Perfect. He's got thumbs up. Okay. So, this friend of mine, he's a a pastor that I respect very deeply. And he, in fact, I'm actually hoping to uh, take the elders to visit his church at some point and just see the way in which they do ministry because there are some amazing things that are going on in their church and the way they're, they're approaching uh, engaging our culture with, with the message of the Bible. And But he's a guy that I've known for many years, and I remember, <laughs> I remember this one time um, when we were just, I don't even know how we got onto this, uh, this conversation, but he said to me, he said, Kevin, one of the things you're going to have to realize, you've got to realize that as a pastor, as a pastor, people are just going to think you're weird. It, it, they're just, society at large, they're just going to think you're weird. And he's like, it doesn't matter, you know, if you dress all cool or whatever, and, and, you know, you try to, you know, go native, whatever that looks like, you know, and you try to, you know, listen to the music they listen to, and, and you're into the same TV shows that they're into and all of that. He says it, it, it doesn't matter. You're they're gonna think you're weird, and that's been confirmed for me time and time and time and time again. I'll meet somebody at a at a at a party or at a wedding or at a coffee shop or whatever, and we'll start talking, and you know we'll talk football and ha ha ha, you know ha ha, you know, and it's all great. Like we're all like. You know, buddies and pals, and it's, we're all kind of the same, and and uh, yeah, yeah, I love that movie too. That movie was awesome, man. That was sweet, dude. That was fantastic, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And then, what do you do? Uh, I'm a pastor, and it's like those those old westerns when you, the guy walks into the saloon. You know, the the out of towner walks in, and the music just. Whoop. Right? So it's like I, I've just had to come to, to realize it as a pastor. People are just going to think I'm weird. We're continuing in our series called The Story. And the central message of this series, which you guys are hearing me say over and over again, is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand how it fits into the story. You've got to understand how it fits into the story of the Bible. You've got to understand how it fits into the overarching narrative of, of the Bible, that the, the Bible is primarily a story. It's the story. It's history. It's the story. But that's what it is. It's a story. It's not primarily a book of, of philosophical wisdom. It's not primarily an instruction manual for life, though it contains all that you would ever need in both of those areas. But to really get at that, you've got to see how any passage fits into this overarching narrative, this overarching story. And, and I would suggest that a passage that we're looking at today probably shows that as well as any passage Uh, i i've discovered that there are many people who will say you know the gospel of john the book of john that that's their favorite book in the bible or others will say things like you know they're really like smart kind of like well they fancy themselves as all intellectual stuff they're like romans you know i just love romans you know uh and and others the, the different books my wife her favorite book of the bible is the is the book of ruth That's her favorite book. Um, But I have never heard anybody say to me that their favorite book is the book of Leviticus. I've never heard anybody say that. And, of course, what's interesting about it is the Leviticus is a lot like this passage that we read here in Deuteronomy. It's kind of like that for almost the whole book. It's just like that kind of stuff. In fact, here in Deuteronomy 14, Moses is summing up a little bit of of what I was originally going to do a passage in Leviticus but it was so long, I'm like, this is not going to work. So I picked one in Deuteronomy that kind of sums up a little bit what we find in Leviticus. And Leviticus is just like this the, it's just like this the whole time. And, and, and the reality is that to understand what's going on in Leviticus or in this passage, you've got to see how it fits into the story. And once again, actually in this passage, it helps us because it alludes. It alludes to the story. The careful reader will notice that it alludes to the story. Verse 1, you are the children of the Lord your God. You see, there's a whole story in that sentence. You are the children of the Lord. The Lord, the, the, the word there that is the Lord is the divine name. It's the name that, that God tells Moses. He says, this is the name that is to be associated with salvation. This is the name that is to be associated with my coming and delivering my people out of Egypt. That when they think of the divine name, what they think of is me delivering them from captivity in Egypt. They're remembering the story. And so there in verse verse one, it already alludes to the story. Uh, Do not cut yourself or shave the front of your heads for the dead. We'll come back to that. Verse two, uh, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, The Lord has chosen you as his treasured possession. Once again, this is is alluding back to the story. Here it's going back even farther. The the treasured people of God, that this is is language that that echoes the language of Genesis and the language of Abraham, that, that God's people were chosen. God chose Abraham as his treasured people, treasured possession. So it's pointing all the way back to that part in the story. And of course, if we remember, if we went back there, or we, when we looked at this uh, several weeks ago, when we looked at Genesis, what we saw is that when God chose the people of Israel, what do we see? He chose them to be the means through which blessing comes to the nations. He chose them to be the means through which blessing comes to the nations, to be the means through which renewal comes. Remember, so the overarching story again is what? Creation. God created everything good. Fall, humanity turned away from God, said, I think we're going to go a different route. But then redemption, redemption, God calls people through Abraham, calls Abraham and says, your people will be the means through which blessing will come to the nations. And so remember that, that overarching story then, then sets the stage for the smaller story of the exodus. As we saw that, that actually when God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, he's, he's saving them for a purpose, He's, he's saving them. He's rescuing them so that they can go on and continue on their course of being the rescuers. He rescues the rescuers. That's what the Exodus is all about. It's about him rescuing the rescuers. I remember one time for a, a friend of mine had a bachelor party, and uh, we decided to take him rafting, and six guys, um, uh, and like three of them were on our college football team. So like and then me. Right. And um, so really, you know, but I'm like I'm the rafter. I like I grew up in this. Right. So I know what they don't know what they're doing. They're just big and strong. Right. But they don't know what they're doing. So we all we all get in this raft and we're, we're going down this river and it's it's way too it's just way too much for us to handle. And at one point, the whole boat flips um, except, and everybody falls out except my brother. My, he was the guide, and he did. He made this miraculous save where he, t- he jumped up in the air and tackled the, the raft right before it flipped over. So he didn't fall in, but everybody else falls in. And so then w- what happens immediately after that, my brother can be, he reaches in, and he rescues me. He rescues me. I, 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 I'm his treasured possession. I'm his brother, right, I guess, right? <laughs> treasured possession. So he, he, pull, and he pulls me into the boat, right? But, but that's not where it ended, right? He pulls me. Now you got, Kevin, you've got to get other people in the boat. And so I went over it, and this is my claim to fame. I pulled in a three hundred pound offensive lineman. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Thank you. It's, it's true. The key is, the key is, you dunk him first, and then the buoyancy of the of the life preserver helps him to <laughs> pop out. Right. It took me five minutes to get him off of me uh, from the bottom of the boat, but I did get him in. Right. So he rescued the rescuer. And you see, that's what the story of the Exodus is about, God rescuing, rescuing the, the rescuers. And then, and then we saw, we went on, and we've seen in the story that, well, what does it look like for us to, to bring renewal into this world? What does that look like? And, and we saw that the way in, in primary way in which we bring renewal into this world is by demonstrating to this world what beautiful community looks like. Showing them what beautiful community looks like. And, and we saw that that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. The Ten Commandments are God's blueprint for beautiful community. And so, so when he delivers them out of Egypt, this is, the, this is what he does. The first thing he does is gives them the Ten Commandments so that they can begin to model, they can begin to model this beautiful community. And what's interesting is we come to this teaching here, it's really all part of that same teaching. Again, what, what Moses is doing here, actually here in Deuteronomy, this is a little bit later, this, this takes place about you know, after the 40 years of wandering, and, and so now Moses is, is kind of, kind of giving a farewell speech to the, the Israelites this is before they're going to go into the promised land and he's actually going back and he's recounting what was said in Leviticus and Leviticus really which follows uh, right after Exodus just it's it's just a continuation really of God's teaching to the people at, at Mount Sinai when he gives them the Ten Commandments and so it, it's part of it's part of this whole uh, this whole description of what beautiful community looks like And what we discover here then is that the people of God are called to be distinct from their surrounding cultures. They're called to be distinct. They're called to be culturally distinct. Culturally distinct from the people around them. And so that, that, that's what's going on in this passage. You see, God is, is or he's calling them to a, a kind of distinction from the people around them. In fact, that's probably when it says, uh, do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. That was probably a practice that was reflected in, in a culture surrounding them. And so it's a way of calling them out, calling out to be distinct culturally from their surrounding culture. So what, what we need to understand then is that the same thing is true for us today, You see, as Christians, we're called to be culturally distinct. In other words, we're called to create a culture. We're called to create a a, a unique culture in which we as Christians live. Um, And so another way of saying that is that when we invite people to become Christians, we're not just inviting them to believe. We're inviting them to become a part of an entire way of life. We're not just calling them to believe. Believe is important. But we're, we're calling them to an entire way of life. And an entire, you might say, cultural system. Uh, we're calling them to become a part of a community. And you see, one of the things that we need to realize is that, especially in our society today, many people need to belong before they will believe. Many people need to belong before they will believe. In other words, it's not uncommon, it wouldn't be uncommon for a person to say this. It wouldn't be uncommon for a person to say, that's my church. That's my community group. That's my community group leader. That's my pastor. Before they ever say, that's my God. They might say all of those things before they say, that's my God. Because you see, some people in our culture, they need to belong before they believe. And so we're inviting people to become a part of an entire culture, an entire way of doing life. But there's a, there's a problem with like this. There's a problem. a uh, can drink of water here real fast. And here's the problem with it. What we're inviting them to be a part of, culturally, here we're talking about, is we're inviting them to be a part of things like church. And we're inviting them to be a part of things like community group. And we're inviting them to be a part of the different activities that we participate in. And here's the problem with it. A lot of people in our culture just flat out think It's weird. They think it's weird. They think that church is weird. They think that being a part of a, a Bible study in somebody's home is weird. Right? I, I heard somebody in our church telling somebody outside the church about you know, being in church, being in a Bible study, and, and, and they're like, is that a cult? I mean, people just think it's weird. Listen, if you tell people that you go to church, you tell people you're part of a Bible study, you might as well tell them that you think that insects that swarm when they fly are unclean. You might as well tell them that when you get a rash on your arm, you take a live bird, and you dip it in the blood of a dead bird, and then you sprinkle it on your arm. You think I'm making that up? That's in Leviticus. I almost wanted to just preach for that passage. Let me just read this to you here the Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for the, the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it to together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird in the open fields. But honestly, you tell people you go to church and you're a Bible study, you might as well be telling them to do this. Because they think it's weird. So the question becomes then, put this down, I'm not using that anymore. Or am I? No, I am using that. Okay, sorry, not sure. The question becomes then, why? Why would God call the Israelites to be distinct culturally like this? And why would He call us to be distinct culturally? Um, remember, if, if the purpose is ultimately for us to bring renewal, if it's ultimately to reach out to people, why would he? Why would he? Why would he tell us to do this? I mean, because honestly, really, at the end of the at the end of the day, doesn't it mean to be the people of God and to bring you know Isn't it really simply about loving people? I mean, in the end, isn't it really it's about loving God and loving people? That that's what it's about. It's about loving God. I mean, Jesus said all the laws: I mean, love God and and love your neighbor. So so why? Why do we even need to do all of this religious stuff? Why don't we just love God and love people and then not let this, you know, this kind of stuff get, because it just causes a barrier. I mean, isn't it really simply about loving people? And actually, the, the answer is yes, that's ultimately what it's about. In fact, in fact, if we don't love God and love people, then all of this cultural religious stuff just doesn't mean anything. It's worthless. It's worthless. If we don't really love people, then, then all of this religious stuff is worthless because in the end of the day, what God's really, the way God's calling us really to be distinct is the way that we love people. That's how God's calling us to be distinct, is how we, is how we love people. Because actually, if you, think, if you think of it this way, to be culturally distinct, isn't really very distinct at all. Because everybody's culturally distinct. I mean, everybody is. Everybody has a particular way of doing things and a particular way of doing life that is, is culturally weird to somebody else. I mean, and every married person figures this out, right? You marry somebody and they're like, that's how you, that's how you clean the bathroom? That's how you fold the laundry? Right? I mean, you, you get some people, uh, foreigners coming to America... And they see how we live. They're like, you have two cars? What is that? That is weird. I mean, again, you might as well tell them you got a bird, you're dipping them in blood. I mean, it's just weird culturally. You see, there's nothing distinct about being distinct culturally. Everybody's distinct culturally. So in the end, yeah, it's absolutely true. What we're, what we're called to do is be distinct in the way we love. That's what really matters. And And, and so... This is what Jesus is getting at in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. We, keep, we come back to the Sermon on the Mount a lot because uh, it's so central to the heart of the Bible, the heart of the gospel. Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. He's saying it's worthless. If you lose your distinctiveness, and we've got to realize here, uh, he's talking to a religiously distinct people. I mean, it's it's not like he's talking talk to a bunch of people who don't go to church. I mean, these are all like they, these are all religious people, very religious people. So it's not it's not like well that you know you've stopped going to church or something that, that's your problem. No, no, he's saying well you're doing all that religious stuff, but you're not distinct in the way you love. And so that, that that's really what it's about. It's it's about. Loving people distinctly. In Colossians, let me just turn to this one here. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this. He says, therefore, listen to this, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You see, this is the same kind of language that we're finding in Deuteronomy, right? Therefore, as God's chosen people. But then what does he say? As God's chosen people and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He's saying at the end, what marks out God's holy people is the distinctiveness of their love. So again, the question is then why? (laughs) Why all of this religious stuff? And I think we get a clue if we start to unpack this a little bit. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14. What's going on here? Well, it's all about which animals are clean and which animals are unclean. Which animals are clean and which animals are unclean. Now, there's a lot of debate, scholarly debate, about why certain animals are clean and certain animals are unclean. Uh, some argue that it, it was largely to do with hygienic reasons. They saw hy- hygienic reasons for why a particular animal might be clean or unclean. Others saw it as uh, they were, certain animals would be, again, associated with other, religious, uh, other religions around them, and so those, those would be unclean. Truth is, there's probably truth in both of those. But actually, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter why particular animals were designated as clean or unclean. What what matters is the fact that animals are being designated as clean or unclean in the first place. The question is, why are some animals being designated as clean and others designated as unclean? When, when, When they sit down to eat, when they sit down to eat... Why does it matter that one animal would be designated as clean and another one would be designated as unclean? And, of course, what's interesting is that this whole issue of cleanliness doesn't just relate to food. And you go back to Leviticus and there's all these rules about cleanliness, about cleaning your house, about you know, how to, getting mildew out and checking the mildew and, and with, the, with your home and with your clothes. There's all this stuff about, about cleanliness. What's interesting is that what we discover is that there seem to be three three states of cleanliness. Essentially. Essentially three states of cleanliness. There's being unclean. There's being clean. And there's being holy. There's unclean. There's clean. And there's holy. And and actually the, the and generally speaking, the society was branches this way. Those who were not Israelites, outside the Israelite community, they were unclean. This is why the foreigner can eat the dead, the dead thing. That's why the foreigner can eat the dead thing, because he can eat it. He's unclean. Right? And then the Israelites were clean, and then the priests were holy. Holy. So you had this, this threefold cleanliness. Now, I want us to remember something. When we looked at the tabernacle, one of the things that you may remember is that the tabernacle, there were these three metals that would be used. There was bronze. There was silver. And there was gold. And the closer you got to the center of the tabernacle, that's where the gold was. So the more valuable the letter, uh, the, the more valuable the metal the closer you were to the presence of God, bronze, silver, and gold. You see, what God was commanding them to do, what, God, what was going on here is that in, in every part of their culture, they had built in ways to remind them about who God was and who they were. Everything was designed to remind them about what really matters in and so everywhere they'd go, they'd be reminded of this. Everywhere they go, so so the ceremonial, the ceremonial, uh, the ceremonial cleanse, cleanliness was symbolic of moral cleanliness and true spiritual holiness. You see, so so the ceremony, the ceremonial law, was symbolic and, and reminded them, pointed them to the reality of of the moral law of the what true holiness was. So in the same way that a wedding ring reminds me of what really matters, which is my marriage, this similarly was something that would constantly be reminding them of what true holiness was and, 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 and how they, would, they wanted to be, as much as possible, holy. And of course, all of this, you see, was part of creating this beautiful community. Because it would remind them. You see, what it would remind them of is their need to well, to live out the Ten Commandments, to live it out. That oh, okay, this is what okay, this is ceremonial uh, ceremonial cleanliness. But what, what is true cleanliness? Well, true cleanliness. Well, God's lay that out in the Ten Commandments. So it was a way of constantly reminding them of it. So here's what here's what we discover: is that when we live differently, it enables us to love. When we live differently, culturally differently, it enables us within a, within a healthy religious culture. Again, as Jesus says, it can get all... You can start to care more. See, you can start to care more about the religion than you can about the loving. That's the danger. That's the danger that Jesus highlights. That's the danger that he, that he confronts. And so one of the questions you have to ask we have to ask ourselves is, okay, well, at the end of the day, what is more important to me? Is it the way I do religion or is it the way in which I love? I need this. I need this to enable me, to cultivate in me this desire to love. Remember, as I always say, you don't go to church to get God to love you. You go to church to get you to love God. Because the heart of the gospel is that God loves us no matter what. This is is why we're farther along in the story, right? So this is also why our our rhythms and our culture, it isn't quite the same. We, We don't do this, well, you're unclean, you're clean, you're holy, because by the blood of Jesus, everyone is holy by faith. You can fully enter into the presence of God because Jesus has died for us. And so, so the, the, the rhythms are going to look different. That's why we aren't doing the same things, right? But we have to be asking ourselves because we need these rhythms. We need these to help cultivate our love for others. But we have to make sure, are they not becoming more important than loving others? And, and this becomes well, one of the central issues that is addressed in the New Testament. In fact, you might argue that the book of Galatians is almost entirely about Paul saying, hey, look, we need to accommodate. We need to be willing to make changes to uh, our, our religious practices in order to accommodate those on the outside, those for whom this is just really weird. In, in Acts 15, they have the, the Jerusalem discussion where they're, they're trying to get the Jews and the Gentiles to be able to worship together, to be together. And, and, and so really, what, what, what there's this, this line that Peter says. He says, we don't want to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We don't want to make it difficult. And so the question is, do our, our religious rhythms and our religious practices become more important to us than the people we're trying to love? Or are we willing to accommodate? Are we willing to accommodate? Are we willing to make changes? Even in our own practices, in our own, in our own rhythms, are, are we willing to uh, make changes in our community groups? Are we willing to, to always be realizing that community groups are gonna need to change and, 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 and meld and flex, and I don't know if meld is the right word, but they, they, need, to, they need to change because we're, we want to accommodate those on the outside. Now, are, are we willing to, to realize that, that how we do worship on Sunday morning and just how different things happen will change when, when other people, new people come, different people come? Are we willing to make those changes to accommodate or do we just like it the way it is? And that's more important to us. Because if it is, then Jesus says it's worthless. But the answer isn't to get rid of it. <laughs> The answer isn't to say, well, let's just get rid of religion. Let's just stop doing all of these practices. No, why? Because these are the practices that can actually shape us to love differently. So really, at the end of the day, if you're paying attention, I'm really just saying the same thing I said last week. Because last week, we we talked specifically about worship. We talked about why do we gather together for worship? We gather together together. For worship for three things, to remind us, to remind us of the story, to remind us of who God is, to, to shape us, to cultivate not just what we think, but what we love. And to sustain us. That through these practices we can we can enter fully into the presence of God. So we see this is really just the same. Let me show you one more time in Colossians. I love this. Going back to that passage, I don't want to miss this. Because Paul says, therefore, as, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So again, here we go. He's saying what really makes us distinct, what it means to be the people of God, is how we love. There's distinction in how we love. But, but then, what, what he, listen to what he says right after this. Listen to what he says right after this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of, bo- of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful, and listen to this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts towards God. He's saying, the chosen holy people, we live with compassion and kindness and gentleness, but you know what? That's probably not going to come unless you participate in these rhythms that can draw you to the heart of the gospel, that can remind you of the cross, that can remind you that Jesus loves you. That Jesus gave himself for you, that you are completely safe, that you are completely secure, that, this, that just kind of making that embedded, embedded in everything that you do is going to be necessary to cultivate these virtues. And that's why we come to, to church on Sunday morning. But I think what this shows, this back to Deuteronomy, what it highlights for us is that this needs to be a part of not just what we do on Sunday, but our regular everyday life. And so this is the the challenge that I would put to you is I would encourage you to discover what rhythms in life, what rhythms can you add to your daily life that will help to cultivate this love for God and love for others. What are some of the practices that maybe you can incorporate? Maybe for you it's getting back to reading your Bible every day. Maybe you used to, but you kind of lost sight of why you're doing it. Maybe you even got to that point where you started to think, well, I, I, I got to do this. And you start feeling bad and you don't read your Bible. You know, I'm such a terrible person. I didn't read my Bible today. And then what's happening when you do that? Well, you're forgetting again that you don't read your Bible to get God to love you. You read your Bible to get you to love God. What are the practices that you can bring into your life? What are the practices that you can bring into your family? Incorporating these these rhythms, maybe it's reading reading the Bible at, at, at dinner time. Maybe it's maybe it's bringing uh, prayer more regularly into your family life. Maybe it's it's developing fur, further traditions in your own family that are just a part of a part of what you do. Maybe it's engaging more fully in. In the the rhythms and the practices that we have in church. Maybe it's saying being more and more committed to community group, more and more committed to coming to church. Because you realize that these are the things that are gonna cultivate you. Because when we live differently, we love differently. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we praise you for your love for us. God, that's why we are here right now, is to remind us of that, that we might respond with love. God, I pray that you would take the fear and the worry and the anxiety that I sense in so many today. God, I pray that we would know that we rest on solid ground. God, I pray that we would come to learn what the psalmist prayed. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. God, it doesn't matter what comes our way. You are everything that we need. God, I pray we would incorporate the practices and the rhythms in life that would remind us of this, cultivate this. God, that though we are distinct in these practices, it would lead us to love, with a true distinction. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. We now come to our time of response. There are a number of ways in which you can respond. You can respond just by sitting there and praying. I want to just take. The-